Welcome to a Christmas edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And um, this is going to be a little bit longer than an hour of your life, uh, just so you know. We are, this is our first ever Christmas edition. Um, and we've been teasing it all week on the social medias. Um, nobody really guessed anything. Like, nobody really put out any guesses about what we're talking about. So, Steve, do you want to tell them what we're talking about for our Christmas story? Yeah, this one is going to be probably a little bit more serious. It's about the Christmas truce in World War II, or I'm sorry, in World War I in 1914. It's a phenomena that's still talked about today. It's made its way into popular culture. But it's still, I think, relatively unknown to a lot of people. I love this story so much. Um, before we get started, like I said, it's going to be a little bit longer than an hour. Um, we have a, it's, it's, there's a lot to talk about, um, a lot to unpack with this one. Uh, but before we get started, I wanted to mention that um, we are going to be reading from uh, a couple of different sources. Um, the main source that I used is a book called... It's very good, and I would highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. Um, we are doing... We're doing a Facebook Live um, as we are recording. So uh, if you are listening, go ahead and go back to... Go to our uh, Facebook page, An Hour of Your Life, um, and you can watch us do the show as you're listening to it. Um, but our book uh, that we're using is called Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas Truce by Stanley Weintraub. Um, it's very, very, very good. I would highly recommend reading it. Um, it's a real easy read. I actually read most of it on the plane on the way to Florida. Uh, so a couple hours, it's, it's very good. And my sources include a lot of different um, readings, articles from Wikipedia as we looked up different things, different topics about this because we're going to be talking about the home front. So there were articles from Wikipedia. There were articles from uh, different magazines. The I, I've had to go through into the National Archives and pull up stuff and read about stuff. The Imperial War Museum in London. There are just a lot of different sources in this one. So I don't know. You ready to start, Kim? I'm ready. Okay. So the Christmas Truths. Uh, the Germans called it Weihnachtsfreiden. The French called it, you're going to have to do this one. <laughs> Trève de Noël. So basically, what happened during World War I and the first Christmas of World War I, just across the front lines, peace broke out. There was unofficial truce that just, it just broke out, broke out, and... Um, between the fighting soldiers out there on the front lines. It's like that, um, I think it's, it's kind of a cliche now, but it's like, what if we had a war and nobody came? It, it, it's almost like, like that's kind of what happened. Yeah, now let me preface this whole thing is, this is very well documented across almost the entire front. It was more prevalent in certain regions, France, Belgium, but... Um, a lot of things, as you read, what's, what's amazing about this story is how spontaneous it was just across the lines. It was absolutely nothing planned. It was just a small unit, small unit across the way, company and company, platoon and platoon that just... But the stories are so similar. That's the cool thing. Like, it's spontaneous, but 
it doesn't matter where you were on the front line. Like almost everybody has the same story, even though they are miles and miles and miles apart. And you could, there was no way of knowing that, you know, a few miles down the road, somebody else was having a truce too. Yeah. And so as we read and as we studied this and researched it, it sounds like there are, I don't know, it, it's like um, it's scripted, but you could take the script out of one area and it's almost identical. Like soccer matches broke out and in, in different fronts, in different sections of the front, and it wasn't planned, but just the mm-hmm. exchanges, the same thing happened. I think it was just human nature yeah. just just took over with this. And that's what's so amazing and so the spontaneity of what happened during this. So roughly, it's a, a lot of this stuff is debated. Some is very factual. If you were to get on the internet, there are lots and lots and picture, lots and lots of pictures of this happening. Um, there are letters that were sent, and we'll talk about letters that yeah, because the front of lines that were given to like Germans or given to the British to try to get through, and we'll explain why the Germans were interested in getting letters to Britain and all that good stuff. But roughly, so I guess everything we're going to be talking about here, there will be some specifics, but there are a lot of generalities here. Mm-hmm. But the generalities are so common that I... I it's it, safe it's, to say it, them. It, it, it's safe to say them, and I think it's factual across the line. While it happened here, it may not have happened a kilometer away, but it, it happened two or three kilometers away. So yeah. roughly... About 100,000 soldiers were involved in this. A lot. Yeah. I don't think we'll know, and no one will ever know the actual numbers because, I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have the modern ways of communication that we have right now. So no one's going to know the actual numbers. And I'm sure that a lot of units probably kept a secret because it wasn't a popular thing with the command after the war or just weeks after. So a lot of this stuff wasn't found out until letters, those letters that were smuggled over to the other lines and communications made it back to London and made it back to Berlin and made it back to Paris that this started to become known. And it just, a lot of people didn't like it. Um, But we'll get into all that as we go through. So it was unofficial and it was illicit. Yeah, um... From Silent Night, uh, most higher-ups had looked the other way when scattered fraternization occurred earlier. Uh, So this is not the first time, the Christmas truce is not the first time that um, guys had kind of interacted with one another. Um, And we'll go into it a little bit more later, but the Germans and the Brits especially, um, like, some of them knew each other. It was almost like, if you think of the American Civil War, and brother, literally fighting brother, like some of them knew each other outside of the war. Some of the Germans had worked in England, and so they knew each other. Um, but in spite of the fact that most of the the commanders had kind of not paid much attention to earlier fraternization, a Christmas truce was a different a different story. Uh, the thought was that any slackening in the action during Christmas week might undermine whatever sacrificial spirit there was among troops who lacked ideological fervor. So basically, uh, they thought that if you if you have a truce during Christmas, they're not going to want to fight again after a truce. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, 
many of the officers disapproved at this, and many participated. Mm-hmm. I mean, some saw it as ways to sneak up, get information from the enemy lines, possibly. Some saw it as a chance to be able to collect the dead, but it's just a fraternization, the camaraderie between the soldiers that took place that was really frowned upon. And I think... And after the truce, there were some... Um, I mean, there were definitely some... There was some fallout. Yeah. Um, some people were brought up on court-martial. Yeah. Um, I, I've got stories about that. I do want to say real quick, we watched a movie last no- night called Joya Noel. Uh, was it on... Prime? Amazon. It was on yeah. Amazon? Amazon Prime, yeah. Um, it, it's not included in Prime. It was four bucks. Well worth the four buck rental. Uh, it was very, very good. Um, if you are looking for a good Christmas movie uh, and you kind of want to know more, um, you'll see after the show that some of the stuff is, ma- some of the stuff is way it, made up and some of it is really those true. But generalizations that happened. But it's a very good movie. Joy and Noel... Um, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I would recommend take time to get on the inter- internet machine and just search up um, Christmas truce, 1914 World War One Christmas truce, and look at the pictures. And this really humanizes this whole story. But there's lots and lots of pictures out there on the internet that you can look, follow and look up for this. Um, and there's a lot more stories. We just don't have time to go into all the stories. But yeah, again, what's ready, amazing Amy. is these stories just keep going back and forth. And they're, they're the same story. Different people, a different place. But it's the same stories that are going on. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say right now that after this, the headquarters and people, they took steps to make sure that this couldn't happen again. Because as you can imagine, if you make friends with someone across, when I say friends... It was a lot harder to shoot the guy that you were sharing yeah, brandy with the night with. before and trading chocolate and doing stuff. And so yeah. after the war or after the Christmas truce, a lot of, a lot of units had to be moved to, um, to get things back in order for the... Uh, to, to get the ro- for, war for moving the command, again? To get the war moving again. Um, so. Speaking of the war, yep. do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about the... The beginning of World War One yeah. and let like me, how it started. Yeah, let me just finish up here. So this is a story really of about humanity and the 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 common soldier down in the front line, literally in the trenches of World War Time. Forget about the politicians. Yeah, they're the ones that they, they're the ones they, that got us into this mess or them into this mess. Yeah. It's all about the soldiers in the trenches. So last night I didn't we hadn't included a lot about what led up to World War One, because it, it's... That's not re- the point. The point is not... Like, yeah. the point of the story is the Christmas truce. Yeah. But you can't really talk about the Christmas truce without talking about what led up to the war. And I think a lot of that had a lot to do with... Why, why it happened. Why this happened. Yeah. So, look, the... the the reasons for World War One are far too complicated for us to cover in this podcast. I mean, you could do doctoral theses on this. I mean, there are entire study. We could do a three-year-long weekly podcast of 
why World War One happened. And there are podcasts out there about yeah. World War One. If you're a real like a history buff and you like World War One, go check them out. I don't know of any particular podcast to recommend, but they're they're definitely out there. Yeah. So, just the generalization of the beginning of World War One. We're talking this. I mean, it's going to be like at the fifth grade level. But once we get into the actual Christmas truce, I think this is really up at the college level. I mean, we really did for this, and we put a lot of research into this one to try to give you a lot of... We read a book. Kim read a book about this one. Um, but to sum it up, okay, why World War I happened in Steve's 30-second version. Think of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones stuff right here. Um, there, there are power struggles, there are power voids, uh, political disagreement, failed policies, aristocratic disagreements at national levels. I mean... Yeah, and it's almost like it's a family squabble yeah, because were, back back then, a lot of the people who were involved, like the, the, the national leaders were cousins. Yeah, like I mean, the... Ger- I think it was like Germany and Belgium. They were the leaders were cousins or something like. It, yeah, I mean it, it was. The it's arist- like a family disagreement, basically. Yeah, I, a I little mean, bit more complicated at, than that. But yeah, like that's this very fifth, simplistic. This is the fifth grade level right here. But that's like the first grade level. Okay, so <laughs> another thing to think about here: it was a different era than what we live in right now. Um, if we have a hard time understanding this and figuring out what happened, and it's still debated today. Try to think about the common soldier back then. Yeah, we so, have hindsight on yeah, our side. Yeah, we have hindsight. So the further removed from the fighting, the easier it was for people to criticize. So the the actual soldier in the trench, it just, I mean, it just happened. Um, so what... This whole thing, though, it culminated with the assassination of Arthur Franz Ferdinand of Austria. Yeah, and so that- it... Uh, that was a kind lot of, of this like the boiled up in the Balkans. But you remember, we had Russia at the time who was on the verge of civil war. I mean, there were just a lot of things happening in the world right now that just created. World War I was a true... It was like a tinderbox, Wade, and then the Archduke's assassination was sort of the... the lit the fire. Lit the fire. Lit the powder Happened cake. in August of 1914. Yeah, and that's when the war started was in August. Yeah. I think 17th, I wrote it down somewhere. Okay, so Britain gets involved, and that's one of the miscalculations of the Germans. They didn't think the British would get involved. But so when Britain gets involved, now that starts involving the British Empire, the British Crown, stretching all the way to Australia, New Zealand. So now they're involved. We're talking about the Ottoman Empire, which was in kind of a turmoil. The German-Austrio politics that were going on, Russia... The United States eventually got drugged into this. So all of Europe literally was ablaze. And then... We came in kind of late. Yeah, we the United States, the Americans came in kind of late. But the Brits, the uh, the Australians, the New Zealanders, from all over the world were in literally... In countries we, I mean, we haven't even mentioned are involved in World War One. So semi-unrelated fun fact, <laughs> um, kind of related. The You guys have heard the term doughboy. Do you know where that term comes from, Steve? Do you know why they called the Americans doughboys? Donuts. No. Why? <laughs> because we came in late in the game. Um, 
they the rest of the the rest of the troops like the rest of the world basically had been fighting and they were hungry and kind of emaciated and we came in all big and strong and ready to go and we had some meat the american soldiers had some meat on their bones and were a little doughy so that's where the term doughboy comes from uh, i i've heard that and i've also read too that it was one of the things that they made you're wrong okay i'm <laughs> <laughs> I am wrong about that. So let's talk about what's going on in Britain. So the and we're 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 only going to focus on Great Britain, Germany, and France. Even though we said this was an entire global war, we're just going to focus on those three countries. So what's going on in Britain right now? The civilian population as a whole, as well as the soldiers, found themselves in some ways on the war front. So you had just wearing some kind of uniform. Whether you were male or female, like if you were in the police officer, a, a postal worker, or a bus conductor, that was a way to contributing to the war. Um, were there females involved yep. in the war? Like, I mean... Yes, but they weren't on the front lines at that time. I and mean, there may be an isolated cases Is where... Is it kind of like World War II, where the women kind of went to work in the factories and stuff yes. because there was a shortage of men? Yeah, the, so gotcha. there was a shortage of men. So the women... They went to work in the factories producing the stuff necessary for the war. They started working in the mines because you needed the coal to do wow. all this. So a lot of that. Um, clergymen, um, they comforted, you know, as, as word came back that people had been killed on the front line. So the clergy was involved with consoling. So they felt involved. Journalists, different different types of journalism back then. The, <laughs> the journalists... They wrote in the in the papers and the editorials, they stirring patriotic editorials, and that promoted, I'll say, the nationalism, mm-hmm. and helped form the opinion of you know this is a great cause that we're going over there to do and stuff like that. The news, and we're going to get into it a little bit more later, but the media and the news papers uh, really had a lot to do yep. with perception. And so, and so in England, in January 1918, so now we're coming down to the end of the war. Remember, the war ended on the 11th of November at the 11th hour mm-hmm. of 1918. But in January, um, the Germans had started blockading Britain in 1917. So by 1918, the blockade was taking effect. So this started um, rationing, really took hold. And so just the... the I'll say the housewives, they had to start rationing out their sugar and the meat. This is the first time these two items in the war had to be rationed. So now they started feeling apart. You know, I'm making my sacrifice too. Again, this is a completely different era than what we live in right now. And so it's it may be hard to picture, but if you can put yourself in the mindset of I wonder, England in 1914, 1918. Yeah. It's it's a different world. I wonder though, like if we were to have a World War Three, because you saw the same things in World War Two. Um, I wonder if we were to have the entire world at war like this, would that sort of mentality come back? I don't know. That's it a, might. I that's mean, a if you think about it, day, probably. I mean, think about question. the wave of patriotism after 9/11. Yeah, that's true. And it didn't last long. Yeah. With that, but you know, Democrats, Republicans, everyone kind of got together. So you know, I There's don't hope. Know. But that that's speculation. But I'm I gonna get back. I don't want a war to break out for us to. No. So at the outbreak of the war, there were patriotic 
patriotic feeling, they spread throughout the country, and many of the, the class barriers in England broke down, and they kind of combined. And so, like, during the end of World War One, there was still this class in, in Britain, but it had kind of broken down, and the, I don't want to say, like, the king and queen and everyone were, like, hanging out with the commoners, but... Yeah, no, that didn't happen. No, that, that didn't happen. Still, <laughs> still doesn't happen. So... The Germans, at the, uh, they started using Zeppelins to bomb the cities. So that brought the war to the commoner in England. Now their cities are being bombed. And so, I mean, it's just, that's how everyone started getting the feeling that we're involved in the war. Now for the French, many of the French intellectuals welcomed the war to avenge, basically what they said, to avenge the humi- humiliation defeat to uh, loss of territory during the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. So if you go back, remember to the cause, there were hard feelings, the policies, the the intellects were disagreeing, they were debating this in their grand fashion, their grand style. But the people, the commoners, didn't necessarily... I mean, they kind of did... Because they, some people thought that, you know, the young men, this is a big adventure, like, hey, yay, war, it's, it's our chance to go out and see the world and have an adventure. But you have to remember, if you lived in France, people, I mean, your, your, your village is getting bombed, like you're living in a war zone. So the intellectuals may have wanted this war, but the French commoners were not huge fans. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm still mo- mostly talking about prior to the war. So the, oh. Yeah, so this still hadn't happened yet. But that is absolutely true after once, once the war started, the, the French people suffered because the war was happening in... In their, their backyard. In their, in their front yard. <laughs> in, in their, their side in their yard. House, and... In their house, yeah. Um, a lot of the French people viewed this, and again, this is generalization, as... Patriotism, for the most part, was defensive. They looked at it as they were being invaded, and so it was to them it was a defensive notion, mm. not we were trying to gain land or something like that. Um, nonetheless, these surges they morphed into nationalism. So France in 1914 was basically again, if we could just generalize this, France was not revengeful or overly aggressive they were just hey you know this is happening in our yard we got to do what we got to do to fight this war now in germany life was hard it this it was tough and this kind of helped go on and um fuel it it set the the holocaust in world war ii it, it set the fuel for world war ii so life was hard there was shortages of food and fuel it took everything they had to supply the troops up at the front lines. And front lines, we're talking about the Eastern Front, fighting the Russians, and on the Western Front. And there were also, you know, we're talking Turkey. It's, it's all over the, the world place. World War. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, women and children in Germany were first to, forced to work in industries that were typically male industries. Now, this happened in England and other places too, but it was particularly hard hit in... German. I mean, if you think about it, Great Britain had its they people had a, there, but they had a lot of... They, they had were the colonizing. Brit- they, they had all their colonies mm-hmm. to help. Germany only had Germany yeah. to supply what they had right there. So um, it, it was tough. Now, what even made it worse on Germany was because of the lack of food that 
it took to feed all the troops at the front line, there were food shortages in Germany. And this Mm. really, really affected the health of basically the women and children who were were left left back. And that became a a real health crisis for the Germans to, um, they had to deal with. Because the people, the, the women and the children were dying from malnutrition. So you can really this. see where World War II came from and where, I mean, a lot of people, I think, um, when you think of World War II, people are like, how in the world could this have happened? It, it really, you have to look back to World War I to see how the German people were just, they just had enough and they were looking for a savior and Adolf Hitler uh, actually got his start in World War I. We're going to mention him a little bit later. Um, now, as a prelude to the war, okay, we keep saying World War I, but they didn't know it was World War I at the time. <laughs> it was just a war. It was the Great War. It was the war to end all wars. World War I is described as the first modern war. I mean, this is when tanks, we, we started seeing tanks were first arrived on the battlefield, aircraft. It really revolutionized yeah. Radios, radios were now involved, so commanders, you know, they couldn't transmit far, but it was better than laying a line or sending messengers, either runners or on horseback, even though that still happened, and there were plenty of horses and mules and things like this. I've even seen yeah. pictures of elephants being used. <sighs> yeah, not not. In France. Could you imagine like elephants and tanks in the same place at the same time? Well, I have seen How pictures. How strange! I I have seen pictures of um, an elephant being used during World War II, and a steel. Uh, basically, they were recycling steel for the war effort, and uh-huh. the the circuses and everything had to shut down because of the war. And this company acquired an elephant, and they would use this elephant to move the steel. So I mean, that's cool. Yeah, I mean. Had nothing to do, that was nothing with the show, but that was in there. So, radios, this really changed warfare. Yeah. There was killing on mass destruction like had never been seen before. Gas. And, and it was easier. Gas didn't come in until like up in 1915. But it was still the first war. Yeah, they it was used, the first, Like it was the first chemical warfare yes, war. Weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, machine guns got, were improved by this time, and it just, one technological advance, and I used to teach military history, so one technological advance was countered by another, and it just, you know, we think now the arms race. So, anyway, by December 1914, the men in the trenches were veterans to war. They were familiar enough with the realities of combat to have lost a lot of their idealism of you know, we're going for a king and country. We're fighting for the Kaiser. Yeah, well, just- and we didn't mention um, that when the war started, the idea was, oh, they'll be home by Christmas. So once Christmas rolls around, yeah, they weren't home. Yeah, the the conditions were terrible. And, but, and it's just like any war we all go to, it's always, hey, we'll be home by Christmas. Yeah. It, di- it didn't happen. Um. So... Uh, Again, I'm going to read from Silent Night. Separated by the miserable waste of no man's land as Christmas approached, troops seemed likely to enjoy nothing of the holiday's ambiance, not even mere physical warmth. Cold rain had muddied and even flooded many trenches, and decomposing bodies floated to the surface. Crude duckboard platforms barely kept soldiers dry, but few were eager to shelter in mucky hideaways that might be worse. 
Unless soldiers moved about, they would sink into the liquefying mud, and many slept erect if they could, leaning against the dripping trench walls. It was a stomach-churning atmosphere for eating one's rations. Latrines were nearly non-existent and accomplishing bodily functions a nightmare. German expressionist artist Otto Dix described the landscape of fortified dishes, ditches as, quote, lice, rats, barbed wire, fleas, shells, bombs, underground caves, corpses, blood, liquor, mice, cats, artillery, filth, bullets, mortars, fire, steel. That's what war is. It is the work of the devil. So I, I just, I, I, for lack of a better term, I love that description um, because it really drives home the ugliness of war. I mean, you, when you think of trench warfare, it was dirty. It was cold. I mean, the ground was mud should have been frozen, but it wasn't, it was, it was cold, but not cold enough to freeze the ground. So it was muddy there. The guys had lice infestations, all kinds. It was just gross. Trench foot. I mean, you didn't have, latrines per se so people i mean it stunk more it, more people were casualties to disease and to health reasons than they were to actual combat during world war ii and then we're not even talking about the uh fluins influ- the influenza epidemic that stretched through in 1918 so it i, I think everyone gets a picture it was a terrible terrible miserable yeah. place to be and, and, and that's yeah. not when they when they when they got conscripted when they volunteered to go over and fight the war. This is not what they were picturing the war was going to be like. Right, and this is keep in mind this is in 1914. This is still the beginning of the war. Okay, yeah, it's it had only been it's going on since August. Drag on for so August, like September, three, October, four November, more years. December. So barely into the war, like four and a half months right now. Yeah. Okay, this and is... already they're realizing. This is this is not fun. This this is not this is what not we thought the big it was adventure. Okay, so what happened now is as Kim described. It had been muddy, wet, but just before Christmas, um, it got cold. It got real cold. The ground froze. There was a hard frost. There was a little bit of snow, and and some people attribute this to making it. Um, it, to the soldiers out there, it maybe made them a little homesick, maybe a little bit more miserable, but thinking about, okay, I'm even more miserable now, it's cold. They're thinking about sitting around home, you know, next to a warm fire, drinking some brandy and getting ready for Christmas. You know, they're getting nostalgic and <laughs> understanding, you know, their decisions if they enlist or thinking about their decisions they're enlisted or thinking about, you know, I, I, w- I was drafted into this. And, I mean, so there's a lot of things going on in their mind. Their mind may have not been completely focused on fighting the war right now. Their thoughts were drifting. So let's get into Christmas of 1914. And it, it's it's taken this much time just to yeah. set the stage for this. But I really not think for this story. Not easy why we say it's going to go over an hour. Yeah, I, th- I think for this story, we needed to set the stage for that. So yeah. let's move on into Christmas of 1914 and the Christmas truce of 1914. It's been described as magical. And this is because it just, the stories are so similar to what happened up and down all over the lines. And they needed something magical. I mean, after after hearing what, how 
disappointed they were and how yucky it was. Well, the first signs that something strange was happening occurred um, on Christmas Eve, about 8.30. Now, we're, we're talking about one place on the line, but remember, this is happening very, very same story in different places up and down the line, but we can only use what is recorded and what we have, but... And if we wanted to go four or five episodes, we could tell you more stories of the same thing happening someplace else. So we had to pick and choose to put the story together. But understand this is a generalization. So about 8.30, an officer of the Royal Irish Rifles reported to the headquarters. And this is the quote. uh, Germans have illuminated their trenches, are singing songs, and wishing us a happy Christmas. Compliments are being exchanged, but am nevertheless taking all military precautions. The two sides serenade each other with carols. Uh, the Germans sing Silent Night, being met when the British started singing the first Noel. Okay, so in a different place up and down the line, they may have been singing different songs, but this happened. There were instruments being played. Yeah, Um uh, again from Silent Night. In war, all frontline soldiers were equal, but in this competition, there were some superstars. A German cornet virtuoso played across the lines, and a French harmonica performer broke the night silence in his sector with Stilenacht, while a German violinist stood atop his parapet to offer the French Handel's Largo. As a village church bell was heard at midnight Christmas Eve, a British correspondent reported it was followed by, quote, a voice clear and beautiful singing Minuit Chrétien, c'est l'air somnel, which is the English... Um, it's O Holy Night. And who do you think the singer was? Granier of the Paris Opera. The troops, French and German, forgot to fire whilst listening to that beautiful tenor voice, end quote. So um, Victor Granier was a very, very famous opera singer. Uh, and again, going back to the movie Joya Noel that we talked about um, earlier, I think that um, one of the characters in the movie based is that. based off of Victor Granier. Yep. So. Um, so there were some pr- like f- fairly famous people in the trenches at the time too that lent their talents to uh, the truce in the in the music making. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it just it just happened. It, nothing again. Nothing's planned. So scouts went out, kind of cautiously went out, and you got a picture. They've been fighting. So y- if you can just kind of get into your mindset, how. What a brave act that took to stand up in the front lines when previously before, if you stood up, a sniper was probably going to mm-hmm. shoot you, and you've witnessed that happen. So as these things started happening, I can imagine just the caution and the fear, but just that magical thing of happening, of the trust that went out there is like, you know what, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to take this chance, and I'm going to do this. And so I can picture, and I think it, it actually happened, you know, they. You know, whoever was singing or playing maybe stood up in the lines under full well, yeah, like observation. The, the violinist stood up on the parapet, yeah. and and he did that, and no one shot, and this kind of broke the ice. But you can imagine just how cautious and how skeptical people had to have been for this to happen. So I mean, it wasn't just they all rushed out and said "Merry Christmas." Yeah, it, no, no, there, it there, was there, like there was little... a buildup. So around dawn, the British soldiers noticed that the Germans had placed little Christmas trees along uh, their trenches. So the German high command, to boost morale and spirits, had shipped, 
They a stopped shipping ammunition and food yeah. to get make sure that there was a Christmas tree in the trenches. Do you want to briefly mention um, how important that is in the German culture? Even today, like the Christmas tree is a big deal in German culture. Um, and they... Uh, like even if they didn't have a Christmas tree, there are stories of the British troops like going and getting their own Christmas trees and like chopping them down and like putting them up. And that was really, um, I think the Germans are pretty much credited with starting the Christmas truce by doing this, uh, putting up the Christmas trees and the lights from the Christmas trees kind of was what started everything. And everybody else on the opposing line was like, what is going on? Yeah. So, yeah, and I mean, soldiers just slowly started getting up out of their trenches and, you know, crossing the barbed wire, and they started walking toward each other. So, I mean, try to picture in your mind right now, it's cold, you, you've been living in this trench, your enemy is over there, and now we are in no man's land walking towards each other, and what is about to happen, and no one at this point still yet knew this the stories that were going to come out of this. Uh, a guy named, a rifleman, a guy named Oswald Tilly, wrote a letter home to his parents that basically said, that describing this said, literally hundreds of each side were out in no man's land shaking hands. Not a lot of the British troops spoke German, but a lot of the Germans had worked in, as Kim had said earlier, worked in Great Britain before the war. A lot of them in restaurants. And there's a case in... Um, the 5th London Rifle Brigade, a, um, a, a story says, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours until we started up, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn in the Latin words. And I thought, well, this is a mo really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of the war. In neither one of their languages. Yeah. <laughs> actually well in latin and in, in latin English, but yeah, that's what English. i'm saying like they yeah. were not speaking they were speaking a third language and there, there are reports that um in stories that chaplains which would have been catholic priests mm -hmm. came out and gave mass. mass yeah in latin that both the germans and the uh the british and if they were in the french area that the french would all understand yep yeah um the war diary of a guy, a Scots guard, recorded that Private Merker said that he met a German patrol and was given a glass of whiskey and some cigars, and a message was sent back to the line saying that if we don't fire at them, they would not fire at us. So it, it's this whole situation is still developing. Yeah, and they uh, there was a lot of food exchanged. Letter from Captain R.J. Arms. Uh, from the first North Staffordshires, uh, wrote, I was in my dugout reading a paper and the mail was being dished out. It was reported that the Germans had lighted their trenches up all along the front. We had been calling to one another for some time, Christmas wishes and other things. I went out and they shouted, no shooting. And then somehow the scene became a peaceful one. All our men got out of the trenches and sat on the parapet. The Germans did the same, and they talked to one another in English and broken English. I got on top of a trench and talked German and asked them to sing a German Volkslied, which they did, and then our men sang quite well, and each side clapped and cheered the others. I asked a German who sang a solo 
to sing one of Schumann's songs, so he sang the two grenadiers splendidly. Our men were a good audience and really enjoyed his singing. So they uh, sang together, they talked together, they shared food, they shared drink. And really, that's the amazing part of this story is like it all happened spontaneously. And I mean, it's just when when Steve mentions humanity and these are just the general um, like just the guys on the front lines, these are not the politicians. These are not the ones that are pulling the strings to make the guys uh, go to war. These are the the fighters Um and it's like you said earlier, you know, probably a lot of this was because they were all of similar faith backgrounds, similar, um, at this point, even though some of them were famous, it's like you said, well, they class were able warfare to share, They were able gone, to share a Catholic mass with each other. Well, yeah, and class, classism had kind of gone out the window at this point. They were all nostalgic for being home. They all wanted to get back to their families um, yeah, I can promise you that as soldiers being away from home, they were all a little bit homesick right now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Also, like you said, this is early in the war. Yeah. I mean, by the time the war had moved on, a lot of these feelings had gone away. Yeah. So as the truce went, the, the artillery fell silent. And at the end of the show, I'm going to have a, uh, a special edition if you want to hang on and listen. And I'll explain that at the very end. But it's as the guns actually fell silent at the end of uh, World War I. And I'll explain all that here in a little bit, but that'll be at the end, of the, the very end of the show. Um, the truce also allowed time for people to go out, gather their dead in no man's land, to bring them back for burial parties. There, there are stories that joint services were held to, to bury the dead. Uh, a guy named Private Frederick Heath, the truce began late, that same night, and all down our line of trenches, there came to our ears a greeting unique in the war. English soldiers, English soldiers, Merry Christmas, and Merry Christmas. Heath wrote back in a letter home that also said, Come out, English soldiers, come out here to us. For some little time we were cautious, and we did not even answer. Officers, fearing treachery, ordered the men to be silent. But up and down our line, one heard the men answering that a Christmas greeting from the enemy. How could we, we resist wishing each other a Merry Christmas, even though we might beat each other's throats immediately afterwards? So we kept up a running conversation with the Germans, all the while our hands ready on our rifles. Blood and peace, enmity and fraternity. War's most amazing paradox. The night wore on to dawn, a night made easier by songs from the German trenches, the pipings of uh, piccolos from our broad lines, laughter and the Christmas carols. Not a shot was fired. But, there's always a but. It wasn't like that everywhere. There were still some holdouts. Um, there's a story that, uh, from the German side, um, one of the officers wrote, um, and this is, uh, again, from Silent Night, gentlemen, you asked us yesterday temporarily to suspend hostilities and to become friends during Christmas. At the present time, when we have clearly recognized England's real character, we refuse to make any such agreement. 
Although we do not doubt that you are men of honor, every feeling of ours revolts against any friendly intercourse toward the subjects of a nation which for years has, in underhanded ways, sought the friendship of all other nations but our own, so that with their help they might annihilate us, a nation professing Christianity, whose greatest pleasure would be to see the political disappearance and social eclipse of Germany." Gentlemen, you are not, it is true, the responsible leaders of English politics, and so you are not directly responsible for their baseness. But all the same, you are Englishmen, whose annihilation we consider to be our duty. We therefore request that you take such action as will prevent your mercenaries, whom you call soldiers, from approaching our trenches in the future. So it wasn't always a peaceful night everywhere, but for the most part, the truce was pretty widespread. Yeah. Now, some accounts say that this only happened between the British and the Germans. The French were much more sensitive, and, and like Kim had mentioned in the beginning, because this war was taking place in their front yard, so they weren't quite as on board. There's, if there were, it was censored, and is not, not as many stories got out. Uh, the Germans were reported to be harsh in the areas they occupied to the French, so... There, there wasn't a lot of love. Uh, but there was some. Uh, Richard Sherman, a German, wrote an account um, that said, quote, when the Christmas bells sounded and the villages of the Vosges, I'm not sure how you say that, but uh, when the Christmas bells sounded in the villages behind the line, something fantastically unmilitary occurred. German and French troops spontaneously made peace and ceased hostilities, they visited each other through disused trench tunnels and exchanged wine, cognac, and cigarettes for Westphalian black bread, biscuits, and ham. This suited them so well that they remained good friends even after Christmas was over. He uh, was separated by the French troops by a narrow no-man's land and described the landscape as strewn with shattered trees, the ground plowed up by shell fire, a wilderness of earth, tree roots, and tattered uniforms. Um... And even afterwards, though, uh, Sherman still thought about it and, and thought whether thoughtful young people of all countries could be provided with suitable meeting places where they could get to know each other. And as a result of that, he went on to found the German Youth Hostel Association in 1919. Um, so even after the war was over... Uh, it had impact. It had such an impact that, that things... Um, I mean, it, it founded sort of, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like good organizations that, that promoted peace and, and well-being for young people. Yeah. And, I mean, there, there are so many stories. There's stories of British soldiers going out giving Germans haircuts. Uh, there's talks about a pig. And they, there's a talk that they roasted a pig during all this. Um, I'm going to be the first to say that sometimes war stories get embellished, but in even official records and documented history, maybe even some artifacts, and mm -hmm. and, and that's and that's all I'm going to say about that. Ask me sometime, or ask no, no, Steve stop, sometime. Stop, stop, Kim. Don't. <laughs> don't. About specifics. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Singing was a big part, and that was a common thing that kind of brought people together. It was not unusual, like, during the nighttime for the British soldiers to sing songs 
and it would be songs that would obviously not be good for, you know, that. Yeah, there were some, uh, like, they made up some pretty, some were crude, some were not crude, but basically they all were like, this sucks. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) There were songs about how miserable they were. Yeah, and I mean, right now, in today's terms, you could say they were trolling the (laughs) enemy and stuff like that. But it it was, I don't want to say it was all in good fun, but it was soldiers in the trenches being bored, passing the time. I mean, they obviously were not shooting at each other. You got to, yeah, you're 20, not shooting. 24/7. Yeah, and you got to do something to like keep your spirits up a little bit. So they would make up songs about um, the things that they missed back home or like how dumb the enemy was or uh, actually some song like some of the songs um, Steve mentioned that some of the ammunition and stuff didn't get through because they were sending Christmas trees through. Uh, That was happening, not Christmas trees, but especially in uh, the British um, territories, they were sending out tins, like queen, like the queen's tins or something like that, um, as like a gift from the crown to the soldiers. And they suspended shipping ammunition so that the, the crown could give the soldiers um, Christmas presents. And they were like, we don't, we don't want this. We need ammunition. So they were making up songs about that kind of stuff too. So even though there was some national pride there, they still were kind of like, I don't know about this. Okay. Yeah. So Sir Edward Holtz of the Scots guard wrote, as we're talking about singing that he wanted to organize a Christmas party in the British trenches to sing songs because he was getting tired of hearing the Germans kept singing back Deutsch Nuber Alles. So he wanted, to, <laughs> he wanted to give that, give something back to the Germans. Um, on Christmas Day, Brigadier General Walter Congreve, who was the commander of the 18th Brigade, wrote a letter. He said, remember the Germans initiated a truce. He said that he remembered the Germans initiated a truce for the day. Congreve later admitted that he was reluctant to personally witness the scene of the truce for fear that he would be a prime target for German snipers. So this, this truce is happening at lower levels. Obviously, the general was aware of it. Doesn't appear he did anything to stop it. He just let it happen for whatever reason. But for the most part, the generals were afraid of losing control of what was going on. I mean, they were in the mindset it would be difficult to shoot the man you had shared with the day before. Um this was viewed at those levels as a major breach of discipline. Some considered it treason to the soldiers who were fighting, dying and getting maimed. I think they just thought about it was a break, a break from the war. Now, all this is happening, and we've, we've heard so many tales of soccer. So someone found soccer balls, and... I, from which side, they, a lot of people think it was the British, and they found these soccer balls, and they went out, and spontaneous soccer games just started happening. Foosball, Foosball. football. Uh, allegedly, some players of Bayern München were there, which yeah. is like the the best the Premier League in the world. And, yeah. I, I mean, I am not biased or anything, but, but Bayern München was there. Um, well, soldiers being soldiers, someone found a ball, they started kicking it around, <laughs> and a game broke out. Now, what happened was actually more than that, and this has become one of those great legends of the Christmas truce. And I can safely say that it's not 
legend this happened and there yeah. because there's reports of this at least four or five games soccer games happening up and down the front mm-hmm. so it happened it's just you you can combine all these stories uh it's legend that the match played between the british and the germans at one point the germans claimed to have won three of to t- claimed to won three to two but the brits claimed that last goal shouldn't have counted because <laughs> They were clearly offsides, and that goal shouldn't have counted. Uh, in January 1st, 1915, the Times of London published a letter from a doctor attached to the Rifle Brigade reported, a football match played between them and us out in front of the trench. So th- there's documentation. The brigade's official history insisted that no match took place. Uh, it would have been most unwise to allow the Germans to know how weakly the British trenches were held. And we talked about that, that some people did go over and took notes of where machine guns, where things were, because they knew the truce wasn't going to last. So, I mean, there was still caution going on. But even though that brigade's official history insists that no match took place, the 133rd Royal Saxon Regiment officially acknowledges a game. Um, their uh, actual official war history describes, quote, the droll scene of Tommy und Fritz, first chasing down hares, fleeing from under the cabbages, then kicking about a football furnished by a Scot. So the Scotch were the ones um, in their kilts, which they actually did fight in kilts. Uh, and the official account says, this developed into a regulation football match with caps, Casually laid out as goals, so like their their helmets, their hats um, were the goalposts. The frozen ground was no great matter. Then we organized each side into teams lining up in motley rows. The football in the center. The result: das Spiel endet three to four Fritz. A Saxon, one of us, took a photograph, but it is not reproduced in the official history. There's another letter that said us Germans really roared when a gust of wind revealed. That the Scots wore no drawers under their kilts and hooted and whistled every time they caught an impudent, how do you say that? Impudent glimpse of one posterior (laughs) belonging to one of yesterday's enemies. So I I just imagine how the tension was relieved by all this going on right there. Uh, Like we said, at least three or four other matches are documented officially or unofficially, mm-hmm. taking place up and up and down the lines. Um, They're actually so much... Um, like, soccer was such a big part of the whole thing that in 2014, Prince William um, actually dedicated a formal... Uh, one of only, like, two or three in the world... Uh, memorials to the Christmas truce. And it was actually designed by a schoolboy in um, England. It, you can Google it. It's called uh, the, f- I think it's called the football remembers or something like that, but it's basically designed. It's two, um, two hands shaking hands with like a football around it. Uh, and it, so it was such a big part of, of the day that it is, uh, like part of the n- the national memorial. Hmm. Well, yeah, and we're going to talk about some memorials that have been built later at the end. Yeah, la- yep. later towards the end. Um, 
General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who was the commander of the British Second Corps, ordered orders forbidding friendly communication with the opposing German troops. Again, the further you were away from the front lines, it was easier for you to discourage this and not see what was happening. Now, the only thing I want to say about this guy is Mm -hmm. Corporal Adolf Hitler of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry was not a fan of the truce. There's shocking. There were there was a lot there's more stories of this, but let's just say he he wasn't a fan of the truce. Um I mean he was probably writing I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote that in prison. He didn't write it in the trenches. No, he may be making his outline at that point. There you go. Um there was a court martial, a an officer of the Scots Guard was court-martialed for defying the standing orders of, of frater, fraternization frat, yeah, and, with, with yeah. the enemy. He was found guilty, and he was reprimanded. The punishment was later annulled by General Haig. Uh, could have something to do that um, his wife's uncle was the prime minister oh, of Oh, you Britain. think yeah. that might have something to do with it? It may have had something to do with this. Uh-huh. Um, again, not every soldier on... Either side was absolutely thrilled with the Christmas truth. Uh, uh, with the Christmas truce, there was official opposition opposition to put a stop uh, to the soccer mass- matches. Uh, a lieutenant, as a guy named Lieutenant Richards, who was a young officer serving with the East Lan- Lanchester Regiment, he was he was disturbed by this. He didn't like it. He considered it treason with the enemy, and he. He, he was quoted as saying he actually welcomed the return of good old sniping late on Christmas Day just to make sure the war was still on. Mm. Later that evening, though, Richards received a message from battalion headquarters. Again, so officers even at higher levels were were okay with allowing this to happen. But basically, he received this message telling him to make a football pitch in no man's land by filling up shell holes and allowing them to play, to play soccer out there, or football, as he would have said. He said, I was furious, and I took no action at all. But over time, he did mellow, and he allowed this to happen. He said, <laughs> later he, he said that I, he wished that he kept that signal. He goes, I stupidly destroyed it because I was so angry. It would have been a good souvenir now. He could have made a lot. His grandkids could have made a lot of money off of that. Yeah, the Christmas truth story made a lot of popular culture. Just to mention a few things, you want to cover that one, Kim? Um, we can. Uh, yeah. So uh, in 1967, the song "Snoopy's Christmas" by the Royal Guardsmen was based on the Christmas truce. Um, you've heard of the Red Baron, Germany's ace pilot. Um, he. Snoopy always fights him in his daydreams and so on and so forth. And he is the one who initiates the truce with Snoopy. Um, The 1969 film, Oh, What a Lovely War, includes a scene of a Christmas truce with the British and German soldiers sharing jokes, alcohol, and songs. Alcohol was a huge part of the Christmas truce. Like barrels and bottles and lots and lots of beer and wine was consumed. I don't know that alcohol is a part of modern warfare so much like do you soldiers have access to alcohol maybe (laughs) (laughs) anyway um let's see uh there are other um plays lots of movies yeah uh, 
Again, Joya Noel, go watch it. It's really good. If you were to get on YouTube and and search for Christmas in the Trenches, there is a song that is written that pretty much describes this. It's called it's called Christmas, Christmas in the, in the Tren- Trenches. Yep. Um, and the Midway Village in Rockford, Illinois, has hosted reenactments of the Christmas truce. Yep. So, um, in the press and news, so we don't. They didn't have the immediate communication that we do now. And so, you know, like now soldiers have, you know, FaceTime, they have the internet. You can communicate from the front lines back home if you wanted to. Obviously, this didn't happen during World War I. So news of this didn't start reaching the populations back like in London and Berlin and Paris until a couple weeks later. So some of these, the press reports came out and started breaking the news about all this. Some of these letters that people, you know, the, the British, for it is, it's apparent that the Belgian post system was still operating, was able to get letters from Belgium to, um, to London. So there were letters exchanged given to the Germans, so the Germans posted these letters to make it back. So it, it took a little it bit took of time. It took some time, yeah. Uh, the New York Times reported unfactually on the last day of the year, foes in trenches swap pies for wine. Um, the London Daily News reported the story on January 8, 1915, um, was the first time that the photographs were printed. So it was like... Uh, let's see, the mirror displayed a happy mixed throng as at a historic group. Um, in the first week of the new year um, is when uh, the British and German papers really kind of started. The French um, censorship kept a lot of the stories out, but the British and Germans, um, the South Wales echoes on January 1st predicted sweepingly, quote, when the history of the war is written, one of the episodes which chroniclers will seize upon as its most surprising features will undoubtedly be the manner in which the foes celebrated Christmas. How they fraternized in each other's trenches, played football, rode races, held sing-songs, and scrupulously adhered to their unofficial truce will certainly go down as one of the greatest surprises of a surprising war. Yeah, the British papers generally were more positive about this. The London Times wrote a, basically said, a lack of malice was felt by both sides. Uh, coverage in Germany was a little bit more muted because, you know, the suffering that was going on there with, with their people in Germany. So it was a little bit more muted back there. Uh, the, the German newspapers criticized it more so than the papers of the rest of the world. The German papers didn't publish any pictures of this happening. No, and they downplayed um, a Leipzig magazine, Reclam's Universarum, uh, downplayed the episode as, quote, a great exaggeration, unrepresentative of the entire front, and empty of, quote, orgies of brotherly love. Um, and it showed... It did, that magazine did reprint three pictures from London papers showing artist depictions of fraternization and claimed that the German accounts proved that the enemy drawings were falsehoods. Yeah. The, 
the German papers in early January released an official statement, probably put out by the, the War Department, that basically said the truth was happening in restricted sectors of the British front and amounted to little more than exchange of songs, which quickly degenerated into shooting. So yeah. the, the German propaganda machine took over because they didn't want this. On New Year's Day, Tagli Grunschau said, war is no sport, and we are sorry to say that those who made these overtures or took part in them did cle- did not clearly understand the gravity of the situation. The, the Wall Street Journal said, what appears from the winter fog and misery is a Christmas story, a fine Christmas story that is, in truth, the most faded and tattered of all adjectives, inspiring. Yeah, so it really depends on which side of the war you were on, how the Christmas truce was represented. Yeah. And to wrap all this up, it was widely accepted that the truce would be temporary, which it was. Late in the war, there were smaller examples of truce happening, but it wasn't to the extent of this. It was like temporary ceasefires, you know, show the white flag, Let's take a break for an hour. Let's collect our dead. But nothing with the exchange of camaraderie going on that was witnessed. Yeah, there were no more soccer games. There were no more exchange of food and drink. No more exchange of letters. No more exchange of addresses. And let's get together after the war. Thank you for cutting my hair and, and, you know, things like that. I mean, there's a lot of documentation that... Both sides were intent on keeping the truce, keeping the peace until midnight of Christmas night. A German soldier wrote, he said, today we have peace. Tomorrow you fight for your country. I'll fight for mine. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Now, there were certainly bonds that if we, if we survive the war, let's meet in Paris. Let's meet here six months some after the war, did. stuff like that. And, some, and there are cases where that did happen. Um, it was not uncommon for the resumption of the war to be marked with further displays of mutual respect for enemies. Um, and that happened with... I, I've read several times that before shooting or before a battle would start, there would be some spoiler shots fired to let people take cover mm-hmm. because they were, they were friends with these people. Friends. They yeah. they met these people and understood they were people just like they were, and it was, and the generals were right with this, it was harder to shoot the man that you had been associating with the day before when you saw that you know, you're showing pictures of your wife, your kids. It, it was a little bit harder. And so all along the front, a lot of these units were moved so they wouldn't be facing the people they'd been associating yeah. with the day before. Unfortunately, though, even after, um, you know, spoiler shots, World War One did claim 25 million lives. Yep. So. Um, the Christmas truce ended. The war was back on again. And there were no more official truths until the war ended in 1918. So, I mean, what an amazing story. It, it, it's it's a story. If if you were to hear this, you would just think it's a tall tale. Yeah, and it, it's it didn't happen until 2014. There actually were no um, official memorials uh, to the Christmas truce. However, 
Um, Late in December 1999, a group of nine quirky khaki chums crossed the English Channel to Flanders with the blatantly daft idea of commemorating the truce where it may have begun near Plogstiert Wood in Belgium. Wearing makeshift uniforms recalling 1914 and working in the rain and snow, they dug trenches, reinforcing them with sandbags and planks, which, quote, literally disappeared into the bottomless mud. For several days, they cooked their rations, reinforced their parapets, and slept soaked through to the skin. They also endured curious onlookers and enjoyed visits from the media. Before departing, the nine planted a large timber cross in the quagmire as a temporary mark of respect for the wartime dead, filled back with trenches and slogged homeward. Months later, they were astonished to learn that local villagers had treated their crude memorial with a wood preservative and set it in a concrete base. In season now, poppies flower beneath it. Thousands of, now this is outdated. This is from the the Silent Night book. Thousands of great war monuments, some moving and others mawkish, remain in town squares and military cemeteries across Europe. The afterthought of the khaki chums lark in the Flanders mud um, at the time of writing was the only memorial to the Christmas truce of 1914. Since then, there have been, um, you know, other official memorials, but until 2014, that was it. This was their their homemade memorial was the only memorial. Yeah. Okay, so as we wrap this up, great story. I personally don't think it was treason. No. Um, they all went back to fighting the war. This, you know, no one laid down their arms and said, I quit. I don't know if there's any documented cases of where people went to the other side. I think it was just... They all went to the war with this romantic idea of war, adventure, of patriotism, and it was still so early on the war that they could be swayed and that, that allowed this to happen. In the later years of the war, with all the mass killing, the violence, with the gas taking its toll, that's probably a good explanation of why they didn't have the truces, because by that time, the soldiers went in and... No, I don't think anyone went into World War One hating no. the enemy. But I don't think so by either. the time 1915, by the time the gas, by the time yeah. all the other stuff happened, I, I don't know if that could have been true. You know, there was no love lost on either side by this time. But I, this is still so early in the war that this, I think, is one of the reasons why this happened the way it did. Yeah, okay. I'd like to end on a happy note and say, you know. In spite of all of the ugliness later on in the war, um, it is good to remember that there, even in the midst of ugly war, horrific times, um, people are people, and and during the Christmas season, it's a good a good time to remember that um, there might be ugliness in human nature, but there's also great beauty in human nature, and and you should uh, love your fellow man. Well, Kim. Okay, before we, we get out of here, just remember at the end of the music, I am going to play a, um, uh, from, and I'll explain that. Just keep listening after the music, and there's going to be a little special edition in there. Well, anyway, so. So listen to that. It's pretty interesting. Yep. So, Kim? Yep. Well, first off, I'd like to say. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody. Yeah. And thank you to for listening to this episode of An Hour of Your Life. Yep. And 
Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll be back with you again next week. Um, thanks to those of you who tuned in on Facebook. Uh, if you want to reach out to us on all the social medias or alosthour at gmail.com. So again, thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Merry Christmas. So as I said, here is a recording and basically how this technology happened. The, they dug actual barrels of oil, were dug in the ground a certain distance apart. Then they used a piece of photographic film to visually record the noise intensity. So it's very similar to a seismograph. So again, this is not the actual gun, but it is the actual way it happened with the same, I, I'm assuming with the same guns. So if you go ahead and listen, this is on November 11th, 1918, as the guns fell silent during World War I.